Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you're not currently affiliated with a community, church, or synagogue, and would like to be part of the larger Beth Emanuel family, you can apply for long-distance membership at BethEmmanuel.org slash membership. This Shabbat is Rosh Chodesh Adar. The Talmud says that joy increases in Adar. It's my prayer for you that your personal joy would also find increase with this new month. May you heed the blessed words, enter now into the joy of your master. This Adar comes to us with bright skies, plenty of sunshine, and beautiful weather here in sunny and delightful Hudson, Wisconsin. It's still a little on the chilly side, but that's only to be expected here at this time of year. Why does joy increase in Adar? Because Adar represents the reversal of evil decrees and misfortunes. Adar was the month designated by Lot for a vicious pogrom against the Jewish people, but instead, God reversed it to become a month of salvation and celebration. Such is the story of the Book of Esther and the Festival of Purim. Moreover, Adar brings us to the month of Nisan, the festival of Passover, the season of redemption and salvation. Therefore, we say, joy increases in Adar. A few weeks ago, we were learning about the biblical concept of salvation. I taught you that the Hebrew word for salvation, Yeshua, is best understood as rescue. When the psalmist or the prophet prays to God for salvation, he is asking God to rescue him from some distress or misfortune or to rescue the whole nation. The story of Purim is a story about salvation because it tells of how God rescued the Jewish people from Haman's evil plan. The story of Passover is a salvation story because it tells about how God rescued the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. The story of our master's suffering and resurrection is a story of salvation because it tells us how God rescued Yeshua from the clutches of death. Salvation stories like these are a cause for joy. Our God is a rescuing God. We discussed how salvation can take many different forms and mean many different things depending upon the context. We talked about the final redemption as the ultimate national salvation that initiates the resurrection and the kingdom and the world to come. This is the future and final salvation for which we wait. We also discussed the theological concept of the salvation of the soul, which is the focus of the broader church. To be clear, when people in the church speak about salvation, it is specifically the salvation of the soul that is in view. Traditional church theology hopes to resolve a question of eternal destinies, final damnation in hell, or reward in heaven. For most of the church, salvation of the soul can be reduced to God rescuing the soul of the individual from eternal punishment in hell. It's a problem for us because it's not a Jewish way of understanding salvation, even if salvation of the soul, and the biblical text does not support it. Even if salvation of the soul could be reduced to a question of eternal destiny in heaven or hell, there's still a major problem 
in that the church itself has no consensus on how to go about obtaining that rescue from hell. The means of obtaining salvation varies from church to church. All of the church agrees that salvation of the soul comes only through God's grace, made possible through the death of the Messiah. But they do not agree on the particulars of participation in that grace. The majority of the church prescribes the sacraments of baptism, confession, and the Eucharist as the means to obtain it. Participation in the sacraments is the ticket to heaven. Protestants couple that with assent to a certain set of correct theological dogmas, which they refer to as faith. Having the right beliefs is essential. Evangelicals usually object to the sacramental requirements as a type of legalism unnecessary for salvation, but they retain the need for correct beliefs under the term faith. They replace the sacraments with the more abstract and subjective criteria of being born again, receiving Jesus, or accepting Jesus, terms popularized only in the last century and a half of Christian discourse. From their perspective, the most important criteria to obtain salvation is to quit trying to obtain salvation, because Jesus has already accomplished it for us. The only obstacle he cannot overcome is our own attempts to be righteous. According to Reformed theology, the question of obtaining salvation is a moot point since you are either pre-selected for salvation or pre-selected for damnation. In summary, there's not a lot of clarity on the subject. All branches agree that salvation cannot be obtained from observing the commandments of the law, which they refer to as legalism. And that's the only thing the whole church really agrees on. Judaism is not the way to obtain the salvation of the soul. In fact, keeping the Old Testament commandments is seen as an impediment to heaven. In this community, in past years, we have already studied through the book of Galatians and the book of Romans and also the book of Hebrews. In those Bible studies, we discovered a critical error in conventional interpretation. We discovered that Paul was not arguing about whether or not to keep the commandments, he argued over whether or not it's necessary for Gentiles to become Jewish to obtain participation in the kingdom. We discovered that the exhorter in the book of Hebrews was not arguing about whether or not to participate in the temple and its ceremonies. He was arguing that the Messiah's priestly service in the heavenly temple transcends the earthly. In short, neither of these arguments supported the common theological assumptions about legalism as expressed in grace versus law or faith versus works. It's especially ironic that the one and only time that Yeshua is directly asked, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He replies, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Mark 10.19. These are the words of Yeshua as he directly answers the question. Theologians respond, Yeshua doesn't really mean what he says, of course. He was merely trying to show the man that he cannot obtain eternal life by keeping the commandments. That objection and explanation is predicated on a false premise about legalism. 
and the meaning of Paul's epistles. Does this mean that salvation is obtained from keeping the commandments? Is Yeshua saying that someone who keeps the commandments goes to heaven? But if we break a commandment, we go to hell? Dispensationalists will explain, yes, he was saying that, because this conversation took place before the cross. Therefore, they were still in the dispensation of law. If that's the case, then nothing Jesus said before his death is valid. Look, the reason this entire discussion breaks down and keeps going in the same circles is that it's based on faulty interpretations and faulty ideas. Conventional ideas about grace versus law, sacraments versus faith, heaven and hell, it all needs to be thrown out, and we need to start reading the Bible from a Jewish perspective. I don't mean using Judaism to support our existing ideas, which is what people in pursuit of the Hebrew roots of Christianity usually do. I mean using Judaism to interpret the New Testament. That's what we do here at Beth Emanuel. The whole idea of personal salvation of the soul needs to be rethought in light of a Jewish reading of the text. So let's get on with some of the rethinking. Last time we discussed this, we spent some time also discussing the Hasidic concept of salvation as presented by Paul Philip Levertov in his book Religious Thought of the Hasidim. By way of review, here's what we learned. According to that view of salvation, the human spirit, that is the neshama, the soul, pre-exists in heaven with God as pure spirit. With God, it enjoys perfect bliss and uninterrupted communion with God. But it has no sense of self or independence apart from that communion with God. Therefore, God sends it to incarnate into human flesh at conception to experience life in this world of concealment, where connection with God seems to be severed and the sense of self is inflated to encompass all of one's perceptions. And every soul has a mission to accomplish while here, known only to God. The soul is shocked and confused like an amnesiac, experiencing this lifetime as if it is the whole of reality, seemingly alone and separate from God, where it looks as if there is no God. In this body, the soul can experience suffering and want, but it can also experience joy and love. Only in this world does the soul obtain free choice to choose between good and evil. Its mission is to choose the good and to reconnect with God in this world of concealment so that when it is finally separated from the body, it can ascend back to reconnect with God, bringing with it an individual identity that it can bring back to that perfect communion, as if presenting itself and its person as a gift to God. That's the salvation of the soul from a Hasidic perspective. But it's an enormously risky undertaking. Levertov says that, according to this view, it's possible for a soul to become so stained by sin, selfishness, and corruption in this world that it cannot return to God and must first endure a purification, a burning away, a purgation, if you will. Moreover, it's possible that the soul completely fails to fulfill its mission 
and its final state then is much lower than its initial state. According to this view, the mission of the soul is to reconnect with God. How does the soul do that? Judaism defines this in terms of the commandments. Each mitzvah, each individual commandment, is a mission. Each one is the potential key to salvation for that particular soul because no one knows what mission his or her soul must fulfill. Therefore, the Hasidim emphasize simple things like encouraging Jewish women to light Sabbath candles on Friday night or encouraging Jewish men to put on tefillin because any one of those little commandments might be the mission that person's soul needed to fulfill. Likewise, on the national level, the final redemption awaits the repentance of the nation. But no one knows which mitzvah will tip the balance and bring the final redemption. So every commandment is important. At any time, Messiah might be only one mitzvah away. This sounds like a really problematic idea because it sounds like the very legalism that the Protestants have been warning us about. Keep the commandments to earn salvation. I agree that it could be misconstrued to sound like that, but there's some important differences. First of all, let's understand what is meant by keeping the commandments. The commandments themselves, I believe, need not be understood so rigidly. Our master teaches us to prioritize the weighty matters of the Torah, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. For example, our Torah portion this week opens up with laws regarding the treatment of slaves. How is your soul going to fulfill one of those commandments if you don't have a slave? To obtain salvation, the first thing you're going to need to do is to buy some slaves, right? Wrong. Yeshua teaches us to understand the intention of the law. The intention is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Slaves are treated unjustly, unmercifully, and unfaithfully. The Torah creates laws and commandments to protect them and to force slave owners to treat them with justice, empathy, and morality. We could go through all the commandments in this week's Parsha and see these same principles at work. The laws of the Torah point us toward treating other human beings with empathy and justice. That is why Paul is able to say, whatever law there may be, it is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the mission of the soul. We are shoved into these limited and finite bodies so that we no longer feel our connection to God or to one another, but must rediscover it through our own efforts of loving kindness, empathy, selflessness, humility, and kindness to others. That's the mission. It's also the mission of the disciples. As I was working on Torah Club this week, I was thinking about how Yeshua gives his disciples a mission when he says to them, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the mission, to shine the light of God's revelation on humanity. And how is it accomplished? Only through good deeds. In Judaism, good deeds is idiomatic for the fulfillment of the commandments, but not just the 613 commandments in a mechanical perfunctory sense. 
More broadly, good deeds should be understood as gemilut chasidim, acts of loving kindness. It is acts of loving kindness that Yeshua goes on to describe in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. He describes setting aside one's own rights, prerogatives, and personal privileges for the sake of showing exceptional kindness and goodness to others, even to one's enemies. He describes a path of inner integrity which fulfills the commandments not just in deed, but also in speech and thought. He describes a path of selflessness by which a person overcomes self-interest, pride, and egotism for the sake of communion with God, who sees what is done in secret. He teaches against prejudice, bigotry, and partiality, emphasizing that we should be as children of our Father in heaven who sends, who sends his rain and shines his sunlight on both the wicked and the righteous, the evil and the good. The sermon amounts to Yeshua's teaching on the Torah, the way of life, the path of the soul, the mission which he describes as seeking first the kingdom and God's righteousness. These are the good deeds with which Yeshua charges his disciples as he prepares them for their mission of being salt of the earth and light of the world. Salt is a preservative. He teaches his disciples how to save the world. Through these good deeds, light symbolizes enlightenment. He teaches his disciples how to reveal God to the world. Through these good deeds, that's the mission he entrusts us with. The answer simplifies to exercising love for God and love for others. We are born into this world to reveal God's love. The mission is not to save our own souls or to obtain salvation for ourselves, but to sacrifice ourselves to save the world and to enlighten the world through love and selflessness. That bears repeating. Our job is not to save ourselves, but to save the world. How do we do it? Only through our Master, Yeshua. Yeshua is not just a teacher and guru. He lives what he teaches. He experiences the full human experience along with us. He experiences the separation from God, the temptation to indulge the self, and the anxiety of abandonment. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is the cry of every human soul when it awakens and finds itself lost in the world of concealment. He lays down his life willingly for others, sacrificing his being for the sake of his love for God and his love for his people. He takes upon himself willingly the penalty of sin and the path of suffering, abnegating the self to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in so doing, he opens for us a door of revelation, not just by means of articulate teaching, but by means of example. He shows us the dignity of human suffering and its redemptive quality, and he shows us the objective of the path, the resurrection of the dead. The objective is not heaven. It's not reward in the world of souls is not to enjoy eternity in the blissful state it enjoyed before incarnation, but rather to be reunited with the flesh and to elevate the human existence to the transcendent level of the spiritual and the angelic through the resurrection of the dead.
Then he ascends, returning to that place from which his spiritual being emanated, and now he is something more, that is, a human being with a human identity, consciousness, and person, elevated to be seated with Hashem. And that is how Yeshua accomplishes salvation for us, and why we find salvation in His name. That is why there is salvation in no other name, for no other human being has accomplished this. How could we? This is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. By opening this portal of hope, Yeshua has become our salvation, our rescue. He rescues us from spiritual darkness, from ignorance. He reconnects us with Hashem, teaches us the path of life, and liberates us from the meaninglessness of the human experience. He reveals a salvation utterly unlike the one the Gnostics imagined. Not a salvation of disembodied lollygagging around in the perfect bliss of heaven, but a salvation of body and spirit in the resurrection of the dead. Rescue from death. I don't mean to suggest that there is no paradisical state of the soul after death before the resurrection. On the contrary, it's quite clear that to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord, and that in the world of souls— there is reward and punishment. I only mean to say that the world of souls is not the goal. In this Torah portion, Moses presents God's commandments before the children of Israel. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Moses replied by sprinkling the blood of the sacrifices upon them and saying, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then he ascends the mountain, not alone, but with Aaron and his sons and the elders of the tribes of Israel. And they see God, and they eat and drink in his presence. Likewise, Yeshua gives us the instruction, he provides the atonement, and he elevates us to the level of communion with God, a level he enjoyed before the foundation of the earth. In no way does this message diminish the power of grace or our need for God's grace and mercy. Your salvation is in God's hands. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be salvation. The word salvation means to be rescued, and one who has the means to rescue himself does not need to be rescued. God rescues you. It's important for you to understand how absolutely precious you are to God and how he has invested so much into the success of your mission. Yes, he is concealed from you here in the world of concealment, But that does not mean that God has abandoned you at all. You and God are secret partners on this mission of the salvation and redemption of your soul and the salvation of the world. He is with you every step of the way, 
powerful to rescue you from every evil, even from death itself. Every time you keep a mitzvah required of you, every time you keep a mitzvah for the love of God, or choose the good instead of evil, every time you show kindness instead of indifference, instead of unkindness, every time you set aside your own will for the sake of God's will, or your own desires for the sake of your fellow, God is with you, encouraging you on, cheering you toward the finish line of the mission. He will not abandon you until he brings you across that finish line. Joy increases in Adar because Adar is the beginning of salvations. If you find yourself feeling far from God and far from your mission, don't fret about it. Don't be down on yourself. Don't beat yourself up or scold yourself for being so unspiritual. That's not helpful at all. Instead, remember that's why we have a Redeemer. That's why we have a Savior. Rather than waste time with self-recrimination and self-pity, take courage, repent, turn around, and give yourself back to God's service under the authority of our Master Yeshua. Do one mitzvah. See how it goes. You don't need a sacrament or a creed to turn back to God and get back onto the path of life. Don't worry if you stumble. Don't worry if you fall. God is able to save. Don't fret when evil men conspire against you and misfortune and suffering assail you. Don't fret when your health fails or your plans fall apart. Just remember that it's all part of the plan. And ultimately, God is able to rescue in the end. If that wasn't the case, he would not have put you and I here in the first place. That's not to say the danger isn't real. Of course it's real. The whole point of the existence of this reality is that it should be real. If none of this was real, there would have been no point in coming here in the first place. Life in this world is a great risk, hazardous to our souls, but a risk that God deemed worthwhile. The danger is real. The temptations are real. The evil is real. The darkness is real. But there's no need to be afraid. Be strong and courageous. God is mighty to save. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul